Inverse Genius Episode 7, about Freling Time. In this episode, Eric and Don talk about one of their favorite sci-fi TV shows, Farscape. Inverse Genius is sponsored almost entirely by our incredible Patreons at patreon.com slash obg. Pretty much everything that goes there keeps this podcast running, and we certainly appreciate it. Thank you very much. Welcome to another episode of Inverse Genius. I am your host, Eric Dewey, and with me, as always, is the mean man of podcasting. Well, I guess he's not always with me, but he's always with me in my heart, Donald Dennis. Well, that, that would explain that bad ticker of yours. I mean, yeah. uh, hi, Eric. Great to be back on mic with you, and I think we only did this one for the first episode, so uh, it's, it's, it's a reunion of many episodes gone. Yes, indeed. Well, today we are going to talk about... Well, let me back up before we talk about what we're going to talk about. I got to say, Donald Dennis has been very good about introducing me to quality shows. Um, Cowboy Bebop. uh, What are some other things that you... Firefly. Firefly. uh, Basically, Don will say, have you seen this? And if I haven't, I know due to Don's taste, I should be watching that. And so one of the shows that this happened with was a show called Farscape. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Yay, Farscape. One of our favorite shows, for, for a variety of reasons, actually. Yep. Uh, that uh, the world building, the characters, the through line of some of, uh, some of the relationships, uh, their, their willingness to do some odd stuff, but it always makes more sense than whatever they did on Lex. You know, that kind of stuff. Exactly. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and we're going to talk to you about Freling Farscape. Starburst in three... Two, Two, one. Yes. So uh, when I'm talking to people, you know, hey, have you seen Farscape? If they know anything about it, they usually say, is that the one with the Muppets? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And all the Muppets in here would, would give Kermit the heebie-jeebies. True. But there is, uh, there is a direct connection. Uh, Jim Henson's company, well, I guess his son's company, uh, does all was partners with the creation of this show. And there are a handful of uh, characters that are, for lack of a better term, Muppets. Although they're done, they're done quite well, usually. Yeah. Most of them are, require much more manipulation than most of the Muppets did. They are certainly, uh, you know, weird costumes that don't go over people uh, that, that have a lot of movement and, and weird effects. So uh, really liked that. Yeah, and what it also allows them to do is to have non-anthropomorphic aliens, which is always refreshing, that aren't all CGI. <laughs> right. And they're not all frightening, and they're not all lovey-dovey, and they, they sort of run the gamut of some of these are really cool and will make an impact on you for years to come, and others will annoy or bug you. Yeah, exactly. Um So let's kind of jump into it. So the basic premise of Farscape is that there is this astronaut, John Crichton, from Earth, a modern-day guy, and he launches in this uh, space shuttle experiment, and accidentally, in the middle of it, while he's doing his experiment, a wormhole opens up and sucks him to the other end of the galaxy, or someplace. So, yes, John Crichton, or John Robert Crichton Jr., I guess, is, is who he really is. But John Crichton, or as everyone knows him during the show, Crichton! Uh, he is an astronaut 
a theoretical physicist, a test pilot, and just kind of crazy. And he's sort of played up like he is a stereotypical uh, American sort of, except for really on the smart end of, end of, the, end of the scale. Um, and the space agency, instead of being NASA, is IASA, the International Agency of Space something or other. Um, which I thought was kind of interesting. That's like, oh, we can't call it NASA, perhaps because it was being filmed in Australia. I don't know. Yeah. Who knows? Or maybe you have to pay money to the government to use NASA. It's possible. I think it's public domain. Yeah, probably. I saw... Oh, so I, I did just get back from uh, the American Library Association uh, conference in Florida, and the NASA booth was amazing. They had oh. all kinds of cool posters, and... Well, anyway, so back to Farscape. So one of the neat things that I think story-wise this allows you to do is it allows you to take a contemporary Earth person, basically our viewpoint into the universe, and throw them into this crazy galaxy and get reactions that we might have or even say things that they might say or that we might say in the science fiction universe. I mean, uh, for instance, in the very second episode, he ends up on this swamp planet and he calls it Dagobah. And of course, no one knows what he's talking about. But I love the fact that we get to be directly relatable to him because we are, you know, humans from Earth 21st century, and he's a human from Earth 21st century. Right. He is He is the lens through which we see the uncharted territories and all of Peacekeeper's base, which is where he his adventures take place. Uh, he's sort of our, our everyman, and he's obviously a geek of our stripe, and it's kind of like they, they went extra far to give us the feeling that he is one of us. Exactly. And the other thing that that does is when you start getting into the later episodes and you see how much he's evolved from, you know, Earthman, uh, you really get a sense of how much his character has changed. And he himself, the character, I should say, has changed. Right. And I would say that there are a lot of uh, science fiction shows where uh, characters only go moderate, if any, change. I mean, you look at the entire Star Trek run of, well, any of the Star Trek series and the changes in the characters is usually fairly mild with, you know, a few characters that stand out like the perhaps the Doctor in Voyager and Bolana Torres. But most of the other characters in all the Star Trek runs, you know, stay the same from week to week because you have a bunch of people writing on them or what have you. But I think Farscape and Babylon 5 are probably the two shows that are the embodiment of, hey, your characters will change over time for space fantasy or science fiction. Yeah, I definitely. And certainly in Babylon 5, because it was written basically as a TV novel, so there was lots of foreshadowing and character development. Um, but yeah, definitely in Farscape, the characters at the end are, are different and have evolved. So he ends up getting sucked into this spaceship, this giant spaceship named Moya, and it turns out that it was a prison transport, and all the prisoners have broken free, and they're now trying to escape from the peacekeepers, who are sort of the big bad guys at the beginning. And so... Yeah, absolutely. They, they don't really explain what battle is going on, but part of this battle, whatever it was, was the, the prison ship escaping. Exactly. And so now it's him and this group of prisoners, and they're all trying to escape. Now, of course, they have no idea who or what he is, and they immediately But they take think care they do. They think they do. Okay, so the peacekeepers are the, like I said, the, sort of the big bad guy, the oppressive government over there, but they look human. 
they are not human, but they look human. And so uh, they immediately think that Crichton is a peacekeeper, and so the Wookiee of the group takes him out quite quickly, and they then try to escape from these peacekeepers. Absolutely. And because of the uh, volatile way in which Crichton ended up in this sector of space, uh, he messed with uh, some captain's uh, brother. Brother, yeah. And so now he thinks that Crichton intentionally destroyed a peacekeeper fighter of some sort. And so not only are they being pursued because, hey, they're escaping prisoners, but in one of the weakest character arcs of many, many, many different series, um, uh, Commander Crace is chasing uh, Crichton down for for weirdness. He goes way above and beyond, and it yeah. seems like he is unwilling to even examine the facts or be rational about it. Um, but eventually his character gets much more interesting. Eventually Crace becomes not so... Relentless. Not so stupid, I yeah. guess is the way to put it. Yep. So... Just real quick, we'll hit some of the high highlight characters. Uh, so you, I mentioned the Wookiee. This is Dargo. Uh, he's the big, you know, warrior kind of guy, um, and he immediately doesn't get along with Crichton at all. But uh, eventually, they start to b- build a a very strong friendship that just evolves over time. That is is awesome to see. Right now, now Dargo or Ka Dargo, um, he's a Luxon which means that he's you know taller than humans and he's got weird tentacle things and they've got a few few kind of handicaps that go along with their impressive physique. I mean they've got two hearts so they they've got just phenomenal endurance. But they they have hyper rage which is something that you know young luxons suffer for and that they eventually have to train themselves not to suffer from all the time. And so if they go into a fit of hyper rage then they will it's berserk, seriously berserk. They'll kill anything and everything that they can find. Um, and then they also have this weird thing called blood toxicity, which if they're not, if they're bleeding and it's not bleeding clear, then they have to be smacked around a little bit more to, uh, sometimes even significantly more until they bleed clear so that they're not poisoning themselves with their own blood. This was one of the things that kind of annoyed me a little bit about the show is that the, the Luxons and the Sebations both warlike races had very significant vulnerabilities. <laughs> right, right. Well, okay. So if you look at um, if you if you look at the Luxons and you you sort of and I I haven't done any real research beyond the show, but you say all right, a significant wound, um, they're going to keep fighting anyway, and you assume that by the time they get a significant wound, that uh, that either they're going to keep being pummeled on, and so it's not going to be such a big deal, uh, or they're going to be able, they're going to somehow be able to deal with it. And, and I don't know if it's just the toxins that build up when they are in this, you know, hyper aggressive state that they are having to, to keep from getting else into the rest of their body or what, but hmm, it it seems like kind of a handicap. Yeah. And so the Sebations, which are the peacekeepers, uh, Aaron's son is, she was a peacekeeper, but she sort of got, tangled up in this whole little episode and while she wanted to continue being a peacekeeper they felt that she was uh irreconcilably uh irrevocably contaminated that's the words and so then she was forced to basically leave her life there and so she's always uh kind of harboring for a long time she harbors resentment with the rest of the crew um 
And the, the sebaceans themselves, they can suffer from heat uh, sickness or issues. So when it gets too hot, then they just basically shut down. So I imagine there's not too many desert planets uh, in the Peacekeeper territories. <laughs> right, right, right. But they are advanced technologically. And during the last movie of the whole thing, you find out sort of where the Sebations came from and, and why they look like humans and a, and a whole bunch of weird stuff. But I guess that's getting maybe a little deeper into spoiler territory than we want to actually explain. True, true. Um, but uh, so the next character that you deal with is... Uh, Zahn, and she's a priestess, and she's a plant. But strangely, she's not a Muppet. Nope, she's a human person painted blue. <laughs> blue with silvery flecks and all kinds of weird yep. things. You wouldn't have guessed that she was a plant. Um, but I guess if you look at the different characters, you sort of you sort of have to say, like, since back at the time of Fantastic Four, whenever you get a group of characters, you have to say, what do they stand for, right? And right. so uh, Crichton is the lens. He's the us character. He's sort of the everyman, and he's he's pretty much worse at just about everything than everyone else he encounters, but his enthusiasm and his stick to maybe help him through. And, and Aaron soon, who we just talked about, she's sort of duty and discipline. That's her thing. And the fact that when she's separated from the Sebations and the peacekeepers, she has to figure out how to deal with that. And, and Dargo is, um, he's strength, he strength and rage and, rage, and yeah. basically dealing with that part of your personality. And Zahn is sort of the spiritual center of the crew and usually a source of wisdom, except for when she goes wrong, it is the is bad, right? Yep. So you know when you've upset the priest, uh, the Delvian, that, that things have gone horrible. And and her her big deal is that certain bands of radiation um, cause excited her ex- excite her uh, down to her roots, you might say. Yep. I get it. Plants, roots. I got it. I got it. Oh, okay. So the next one is uh, Dominor Rig- Dominar Rigel the Sixteenth. He's a Hynerian. He used to rule six billion people, but his brother deposed him, and then Rigel was captured by the peacekeepers for. I don't. A what long is it? One hundred and thirty or three hundred? I, I saw two different sources on that, so yeah. I have no idea. Um, so he, first of all, is a Muppet. Um, he's a very well done Muppet and he has a little hover chair too. So it's not like everyone always has to find a convenient shelf to stand next to. When he's doing that. <laughs> yes. Um, he's the thief of the group. He's the, he's the one that always looks out for himself, uh, right. gets the group in trouble quite a bit. Uh, but still he, you know, he's selfish, but he does care for the crew in his own little ways. Eventually, times. eventually he does. Yep. Um, he's, he's greenish. You know, and I, yeah, he represents greed and envy and, and all that. And he's, it's kind of felt like he was designed to be exactly the opposite of Yoda. Yeah. You know, instead of being wise and supportive, he's a little backbiting vermin frog like creature uh, who you don't want to get near him when he's uh, uh, distressed because he farts helium and you don't want to feed him particular kinds of food because uh, he will then pee explosives. That is true. That is true. He always struck me as a character that they created so that if they got written into a corner, they could have somebody do something that would mess everybody else up and add conflict. Right. Yeah. And, but he always thinks he's in charge. Um, and it's kind of weird, though, because there's a couple of times where either Zahn or Crichton will say, no, no, it's okay. We know who you are and, and we still choose to have you around and, and we forgive you or whatever. That That's when he seems to be able to you know show some kind of remorse or whatever but yeah if, if you ever challenge him 
uh, then then he's like, no, I'm the dominar of billions of people. You need to just hose yourself. <laughs> the uh, There's two more major crew members. Uh, the first one is Chiana, and she doesn't really show up till well, near the end of the first uh, yeah, season. Yeah, she wasn't there at the beginning. There's two other characters that we need to talk about before we get to extra episodes, extra seasons. Fair enough. So Pilot, who is yes. the pilot of the ship, mm-hmm. uh, and he is another Muppet, and he is just this this very calm force uh and he is the one who basically is there to interpret differences between the outside world and what's going on in the ship and and uh he is he is probably the most innocent of all the characters and uh is certainly one who i was really surprised because the the way the character plays and is written it could have just been this sort of annoying character but he really comes into come into his own in the in the story right it it play okay if you look at him he looks like he's like part mushroom and part lobster yeah so i'm thinking fun guy from yagoth right maybe he's he was sort of (laughs) styled off of that but he's also he's voiced by the character who played uh kreis all right Mm -hmm. so that was pretty interesting but um he's he's kind of like the giving tree he's always there to be helpful he's always useful but I think part of why it didn't come off as annoying is it's not really that he had naivete, but it, it felt like he was always concerned about other things. He was concerned about, well, how's the ship doing? The ship is sort of my reason, uh, reason to earth, so to speak, uh, mm-hmm. that I am the translator for the ship. The ship is the reason I'm here. And his race normally lives a long, long time. And they have to give up well over two thirds of their life to sort of, bond with a ship and deal with it. And, you know, you think, oh my gosh, Pilot is the nicest person ever, and he's so cool and and everything, but then you find out the dark secret sort of eventually of how he became the pilot of Moya, and you're like, oh, well, everyone has their shadows, I guess. Yeah. And so the last character, Don? Is the ship. The ship itself. Now, we've mentioned the ship. Its name is Moya. One of the nice little twists in the show is that it's actually a living ship. It's a living creature. Uh, that's, I don't know, evolved or grown or something into a ship that people can ride in. and Right. Uh, you, you do meet the race of the creators at some point during the series, and that they, they're very uh, protective in some ways and, and neglectful of others, of, of all the Leviathans. Yep, and that's the name of the ships. And so it never speaks. It only can speak through pilot, um, but it is... Uh, a living creature, a biomechanical spaceship. And one of the neat things about that is there are times when it can't do or won't do what they want it to um, for whatever reason. Like and it's it, afraid of wormholes because it one, and maybe not because of, but either because of or just naturally that uh, it won't do, go near wormholes or it won't do wormhole stuff. And so that's a big, a big thing. Yeah. And so, just one other character I want to talk about before we dive into more of the show, and that is Chiana. As I mentioned, she doesn't show up till near the end of the first season, but she uh, is another thief rogue type character, mm-hmm. uh, and she plays with plays off of Rigel really well. They're both kind of self centered. She's a little bit less selfish, but not by much. Right, uh, she's the child of the group, really. And, yeah, and that's her, which is kind of weird because. She, I mean, she's obviously not a child, and she's over-sexualized within what seems appropriate for her culture. But she's another anarchist kind of person, which is one of Zan's really things. Because you find out Zan's dark thing was that she killed her lover when he wouldn't give up political office. Um, 
I'm like, oh, well, okay, that explains why you spent so many years in captivity, I guess. Um, but uh, Chiana is, uh, when you meet her at the beginning, you're like, oh, she's going to be one of these throwaway characters that we get. And then she sort of weasels her way into the crew pretty quick because she plays on, on Crichton's uh, sensitivities, I guess. Yeah. Interestingly enough, she was supposed to be a throwaway character, but the writers liked her a lot, the actress, and, and so they ended up keeping her on. So we've got our ragtag band of miscreants going through the universe, trying to stay one step ahead of the peacekeepers. Um, So what is it about this show that makes it more interesting than other shows? And I'll tell you, there's, there's quite a few things, but one of the things that I always loved about this show is that it would take your bog stereotypical sci-fi plot. Oh, we're now switching bodies and resolve it and, and deal with it in a fun and interesting way. And they would make the, some of the jokes that if you were playing a role-playing game, you're like, oh, wait, I'm a guy and I've been changed into a girl's character? That, yeah. The fr- that some exactly. of your more juvenile players might try and get away with making. Yeah, yeah. And and so any sort of typical thing, oh, I'm going to see, you know, meet myself from the future or, you know, any of these kinds of things, they have done an episode on it and almost certainly it's going to be a neat look at that type of episode. So it's not sort of the, you know, re realign the deflector dish kind of episode. It's going to actually be something that sort of delves into, you know, what are the issues if I'm suddenly in someone else's body or if I meet myself from the future or, you know, if I suddenly can have everything I want, do I really want it kind of stuff. Right. They do sort of a Corsican brothers episode at one point where you feel what the other person feels. Yeah. And you're 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 bound to them for whatever reason, and you know the the aliens that they encounter in that thing are, are pretty interesting. And then the how they try and deal with it, and it's just kind of interesting. I mean, you're yeah, right. They, they 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 twist and they twist the take. Exactly. The uh, the next thing that I uh, I really enjoyed about the fact is is. There are many times, and arguably you could say that for the whole season, but there are many times when John Crichton just loses it. I mean, he goes bonkers, uh, which is totally understandable because of all the crap that he's gone through. And it never quite shies away from it. I mean, he just goes crazy. There's at least twice that he's abandoned for months at a time, Mm -hmm. having to deal with his own, you know, deal with himself and that. And, um, Having seeing him go crazy and then come back to sane or a relative version of sane is is really exciting to watch. Well, and so we we mentioned the initial antagonist at the beginning, who is Kreis, uh, and fortunately he doesn't play as big of a part in it as you would expect an ongoing an, uh, antagonist. Uh, then they do the the cool thing, which is. Um, you know, they really mess with his character and they change sort of what his perspectives are. And we eventually get another big bad antagonist. And uh, Scorpius basically looks like, um, hmm, how to say this? Looks like he sort of came out of a leper's fetish magazine of some sort. Uh, he's wearing all kinds of black leather and, and weird stuff. And his skin is looks like it's sort of, you know, stretched across his body and like parts of him might be falling off. And... You look at this ugly, fierce-looking guy, and then he talks like the most sophisticated person on the entire show. All right, He looks like a monster because he's part one race and part another race, but he's like, I've learned the value of patience. And he sort of observes, Scorpius sort of observes the universe through a 
a scientist's lens of here's what I'm going to have to learn to figure out to do this so that I can make this other lever over here do what I want it to do. And he is probably one of the most interesting villains in, in science fiction. Yeah, definitely. And they the writers do a, a brilliant job of allowing Crichton to really play off of Scorpius. Uh, and I won't exactly explain how, but for all practical purposes, he also has, uh, he imagines he sees Scorpius uh, in different locations. He's mentally and, hounded by him to some yeah. degree or another. And so not only do we have the actual Scorpius that we have to deal with, but there's also this imaginary Scorpius that Crichton has to deal with. And just the situations that they get into. I mean, there's one point where it's a literal Looney Tunes type episode. Um, and it sounds dumb, but it, it pulls it off really well and it makes perfect sense, especially given Crichton's frame of mind at that point. And, uh, it, yeah, so Scorpius, and then as the longer you get on there, he starts to stop being just generically evil, and you start to understand where he's coming from. Uh, and right. you know, sometimes they have to work with him, sometimes they work against him, and it's just a it's just a fascinating arc, and it goes for the entire rest of the show. Right, and it's it's kind of interesting because Scorpius seems to be sort of all powerful when you encounter him, and and he has some significant advantages, but like. All the characters, uh, except for Crichton, really, there are sort of shades of, you know, shades of gray in them. And he, you know, his flaws are huge. You know, he has some physical flaws that we won't spoil. You know, when you find out, you're like, oh, okay, that's kind of gross. And then he has the other one, which is socially, he works with the peacekeepers, but he's sort of still seen as an outsider. So he still has a lot to overcome that I'm surprised they didn't play that up more. But, yeah. you know, it's it, it's pretty obvious at points. Oh, and yeah, speaking of shortcomings, that's the other thing that I thought was kind of fun was that uh, Crichton is essentially inferior in just about every way mm-hmm. to everybody else he meets. Um, intellectually, he might not be, but everything else he is. And it's so funny because in one particular episode, that's the only thing that saves them is that he is inferior on all levels. And so, you know, the stuff that affects other people, he totally doesn't get, you know, it's like someone blowing a dog whistle. It doesn't impact him at all. Right. It's like, uh, they're like, you can't read that thing over there. And he's like, there's nothing written over there. And (laughs) then they all take turns reading parts of whatever it is or whatnot, just to prove to him that, that he's inferior. It's pretty glorious. Um, And I think that it's not that he's necessarily intellectually superior, but just that his mind is willing to take twists and turns that the others don't. Yeah. Um, Definitely. It's pretty neat uh, that uh, one of the things I liked was that nobody else sort of, there are these little DRD things which are uh, damage repair droids or, or whatnot that inhabit Moya and some of the other Leviathans. Think and, of the mouse droid in, in the Death Star. Yeah. It's that kind of thing. It's, yeah, it looks like a, a great big oversized mouse about the size of a football. For, when I say mouse, I mean computer mouse. Um, that it, it has, does repair functions and do what? Well, he needs to talk with one once. And so he's like, all right, um, we're going to use the Star Trek method of talking. One, one light, yes, two lights, no. <laughs> or, you know, he refers to Star Star Wars at other times, and he's, he's got all these things. But he, he over the course of the, the series, there are a couple of these that he sort of imbues personalities on. You know, whether it's the ones from Moya or one that he brought off of a really old Leviathan who he taught to do the 1812 Overture, you know, all this kinds of stuff that 
sort of the whole universe is cram packed with personality and you never feel like uh, Crichton is sort of done, given this to serve the story, but they're trying to say, how can we push this story concept through their personalities and, and make them come out? Yeah, exactly. And and that, I think that's the key is that things are always through a personality. Rarely do you have sort of the generic, all races are like, or all people of this race are like this. Um, yeah, Luxon's is probably the biggest... But- yeah, is probably the biggest one, but um, you then find out that they're really not all alike, but that some of them really, really are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And so the show itself went over four seasons. Uh, it ended on the fourth season, huge cliffhanger, uh, and then it was canceled. And then they came out with a mini movie, like a three-hour mini series, to sort of tie everything up. And and overall, uh, they did a good job tying things up. There was sort of in my opinion, one unnecessary story element, but um, overall, it worked out pr- quite well. Right. Um, yeah, Crichton's fascination with wormholes is a huge, a huge element of either the last season or that movie, or maybe both. Both. Yeah. I mean, it becomes an obsession to him, and and oh, that's the other thing that I find interesting is uh, there are multiple occurrences where he goes back to Earth. Sometimes for real, sometimes imaginary, but it's always fascinating when he does that because you get a big feel for how much he's changed since he left Earth, mm-hmm. even though, you know, his driving goal is to get back home. Right, right, right. Oh, and yeah. the little, the audio messages that in a video game you might find all scattered around wherever you are. Uh, for him, it's, he's got a, a cassette recorder that he was doing his flight data on that he keeps leaving short audio notes on so that if he doesn't make it home, but somebody ever does make it back there, that his dad gets his message or whatnot. And those are always, you know, kind of a, here's the grounding for your thought. It's the captain's log sort of thing, but it's much more personal. And I thought that was pretty cool. Now there, there are a whole bunch of characters that we haven't, haven't had time to cover here that, that that follow them along. Um, You know, I know that your favorite jewel isn't part of it. Uh, (laughs) We haven't had a chance to talk about. Um, And yeah, Moya's a bunch of them. Moya's baby, you know, so so one of the things to kind of point out is that, uh, you know, not every episode is great. There are some, some are definitely better than others. Uh, they kind of fall into two categories. There's usually the monster of the week kind of show and then the continuing the storyline of whether it's wormholes or being chased by uh, peacekeepers or, or whatnot. But they all, they all work together well. And even on the, some of the slower episodes, once you, once you get up to the, to the better ones, it's still fascinating to see these strangers learning to live with each other and then becoming friends and then really becoming even closer than friends, you know, brothers and sisters or, or whatnot. Right. And so the Monster of the Week sessions, uh, instead of being, you know, like a case of a week thing and a police procedural or whatever, they always focus around the real needs or drives of the characters. It's not usually like, oh, look, we have randomly encountered a ship in space and blah. It's, okay, maybe we have randomly encountered a ship in space, but it's our fault because we did this to get here. Right. You know, and it, and it all sort of, once again, feeds off of, off of what they're doing. Rarely is trouble not somehow self-inflicted, though occasionally it is. Sometimes they are minding their own business. <laughs> Which is, yeah, hard to believe, but but there. Yep. So give give Farscape a chance, man. And I heard that they're they're looking at the possibility of doing either another comic book series or another series that takes place well after uh, when when Farscape 
originally disappeared. So like Don said, you know, check it out. Take it take it for a spin. You might want to, you know, watch three or four episodes. I'm sure it's still, pretty sure it's still streaming on Netflix. Um, but it's definitely a show worth watching. And it's certainly one that rewards long-term watching. Um, you, you really see, as I mentioned, how much the characters grow. And that's the friendship, like, between Crichton and Dargo is just something that I tune into week after week to watch. And when a character is lost from the ship, you really feel that. And in fact, they did a cool thing. Well, I'm not going to say which character, but one of the characters disappears. And then they bring on another character who is um, sort of, to me, extra annoying in all the ways that are exactly the opposite of the character who they just lost. And you sort of feel like the character that they lost would have been a good counterbalance and it would have been a good play. But instead, the fact that the the lost character is no longer there sort of heightens the, that, that feeling of losses is, is you know, much more emphasized by the, who is this person who's sort of intruding on our period of mourning? Yeah. Um, it's kind of impressive, everything that they did. Yep, I know. The more we talk about it, the more I'm just like, man, I gotta, I gotta watch this again. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that might be something to, to do, is that uh, one of the shows I listen to, uh, Cord Killers, they will do a recap of, like right now they're watching Justified and they're going back through and doing talking about one episode of Justified a week in just a few minutes. That uh, if you if we wanted to schedule a Farscape watch, our listeners should let us know that if, if they want us to go through it and 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 do some kind of chat, then I would I would lay out an hour a week to watch Farscape and then do a fifteen or twenty minute chat afterwards. Just maybe either do it through a Google Hangout or uh, or on YouTube or something and 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 record that. That that would be fun. I'm down with that. Count me interested. All right. Well, Don, thanks for joining me. Oh, well, thank you for thank you for having me. I, I'm always up for talking about Farscape. Definitely. Well, I'm Eric Dewey. And I'm Donald Dennis. And you've been listening to Inverse Genius Podcast. Thanks. That's it for this episode of the Inverse Genius Podcast. The Inverse Genius Podcast is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 License. Thank you.